0: Welcome back to this podcast by Young China Watchers. Young China Watchers is a global community of young professionals. We host talks with China experts in our 10 chapters across Asia, Europe and the United States, discussing the most pressing issues emerging from China today. My name is Sam Colomby. My guest for this episode is Dr. Oriana schuyler Mastro. Oriana is an assistant professor of security studies at Georgetown University, where her research focuses on China's security and military issues. She is also a Jean Kirkpatrick scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello.
1: Hi, Sam, how are you?
0: Hi, hi. Wait, let me switch. Earlier this year, Oriana published a book on coercive diplomacy in a potential US-China conflict called The Cost of Conversation, Obstacles to Peace Talks in Wartime. Well let's let's start with your book. I don't want I don't want you to spoil the work because obviously we wanna encourage people to buy it. But let's start with some of the main takeaways and why you set out to do this work, why you saw the need to write about this topic.
1: Sure. So the book is called The Costs of Conversation: Obstacles to Peace Talks in Wartime. And it goes through a number of in-depth case studies of conflicts in Asia to lay out a framework to understand why states sometimes refuse to engage diplomatically with their adversaries. So in political science, we have this assumption about warfare that states are constantly talking while they're fighting. And so when I was in graduate school, I read a lot of these articles that started with this assumption and then described you know, how negotiations lead to the end of the war or what information is revealed through combat. But then as someone who also is very active in um, the policy world, I took a look at that and I said, well, that's not really the world that I see. Um, and when I looked more in depth, I saw that the majority of conflicts since World War II one of the belligerents refused to talk during the whole conflict. And so it seemed to me that this was an obstacle to ending conflicts that we hadn't thoroughly explored. And so the point of the book is to delve into this and lay out the reasons, I think, um, that influence this decision about whether or not to talk to the enemy and can explain why we often don't have diplomatic engagement between countries that are fighting a war.
0: Can you explain some of the reasons that you found
1: Uh, A lot of political science, or at least I would say the best political science, is common sense. So the underlying uh, dynamic here is the following. Leaders are concerned that a willingness to talk is going to demonstrate weakness to the adversary. And weakness can be understood as uh, reduced war aims or a weak resolve or limited military capabilities. And This isn't costly in and of itself, uh, but there is a concern that if the enemy thinks you're weak, that this could actually encourage or embolden them in the war, right? If you imagine you're fighting and the other side looks like they're desperate to get to the negotiating table, you might be thinking, you know, I'm doing a good job. The war is going my way. What else can I get out of this? Let me escalate or intensify or prolong the conflict even further. So this is the dynamic that leaders are concerned about. And I think it's a very natural dynamic. I I had in the the book some examples from like pop culture and things, but one I like to bring up to my students to really highlight it is, you know, the three-day rule of not calling someone after a date, right? If you call them right away, you look desperate. I mean, this is basically what leaders of of major states are concerned about. If a war breaks out and you want to pick up the phone right away, it makes it look like you're not really um, willing to fight the war. So in the book, I lay out the ways that states basically try to mitigate this. If you're afraid of looking Week, you're afraid the other side's going to escalate. You're only going to come to the negotiating table when, through fighting, you've demonstrated enough resiliency and toughness right? So you're no longer concerned about looking weak. And it's when the leaders of these countries make an assessment that they've adequately demonstrated this strength and resiliency that they're more willing to come to the negotiating table. And the second factor is whether the other side can escalate or intensify in response. Maybe they don't have the material capabilities to escalate. Maybe domestic politics won't allow it. You know, there's many reasons. But if you're not worried that the other side can exploit that, that image of weakness, then you're also less concerned about it and more likely to talk
0: and thinking of of the the US and China right because before the US always had sort of this asymmetrical advantage but China and the US are much more balanced is that fair to say and and how would this dynamic play out in a in a potential conflict between these two powers
1: so i think the dynamic is very scenario dependent so first of all there's a lot of conflicts in the region that it's not hundred percent clear that the United that China would feel like it was fighting the United States directly right maybe the United States provides some support but unless the United States gets involved in the war, China might think oh we're just you know we're fighting Vietnam or we're fighting the Philippines or you know we're fighting some of these these smaller countries and in those situations um, China would feel like they were the stronger power and so they probably would be willing to negotiate very early on now in a scenario in a regional conflict in which the United States gets involved, Then I think because of those symmetries, you know, it would would be hard to get the two sides to the table. So it, it completely depends on Chinese perceptions, because at least in terms of the world or the militaries more broadly, China is weaker. So if they still feel that way, then they are going to be very reluctant to engage in talks with the United States during conflict. And any hope of opening talks is going to have to rely on U.S. initiatives and U.S. efforts.
0: You say that this um, perceived weakness is a a very important part of this dynamic and a reason why many states avoid the negotiating table. We all know that Trump is very sensitive to being perceived as weak. How would you recommend the current administration negotiate their way around that um, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: perceived weakness?
1: So the hard thing about wartime that's different than peacetime Is that a country is currently experiencing a great deal of military pressure, right? Force is being used on a daily basis in a conflict. And so any movement towards diplomacy looks like a concession. And maybe even short of wartime environments, when you have a lot of tensions or conflicts, you could have this, a similar dynamic, right, that a movement towards diplomacy feels like a concession. But definitely during wartime, it can, see, it can seem that way. So what I've been trying to argue is that that's only informative uh, when states initially refuse to talk, right? If you refuse to talk and then later on you change your mind and you say, actually, I'm willing to come to the negotiating table— It looks like something's changed. It looks like maybe you're less confident than you used to be. So if the United States had a policy, for example, a blanket policy of a willingness to talk to all of its adversaries, and I mean, not just even China, but in any scenario in which the United States is fighting a war, the U.S. policy is we are willing to talk on day one, then the willingness to talk is no longer informative because it's not based on how the war is going.
0: And are you finding a receptive audience in Washington for that? idea?
1: So um, I think that idea is less problematic for defense planners than a lot of the other ideas in the book because we have such blanket policies in other areas. For example, we don't negotiate with terrorists. So the idea that we would have a a policy of of negotiating during wartime and that would be an official U.S. policy isn't that far-fetched. The thing that's more controversial are my findings about escalation. The United States historically, and I would say even contemporary United States, has an unfound confidence that escalating military force gets our adversaries to talk to us. And what I show in the book, because of this dynamic, this fear of looking weak, if the other side is escalating force against you, you're even less likely to want to talk to them. right? Because it looks like an even bigger concession if under that escalating force you give in. And so I show in these conflicts that... You know, this U.S. strategy always failed. And not only that, but China also historically has believed that escalation gets their opponent to the negotiating table. And China has also failed time and time again to do that. So one of the big points that I've been trying to get across to policy and defense audiences is if your goal is to get negotiations underway, escalation will not get you there.
0: let's talk about the role of mediators because mm. that, that is also one of the things that you mentioned quite often is, is that there is this opportunity for mediators to step in. Right. Now, particularly between the U.S. and China, who would be these mediators?
1: So one of the things that I really lay out is I think we, um, I wouldn't say misunderstand, but we limit our understanding of what mediation is in an in unuseful and unnecessary way. So there's two types of ways that I see that we think about mediation. I mean, one is communication and information tra- uh, transmission. That mediators are there to help communicate information between two parties, and the other, that mediators can impose agreements on parties. So in the case of China and the United States, it would be very difficult to think about a mediator role as some other country that decides this is going to be the agreement of the end of the war and then impose it on China and the United States. Right? That's not that's not going to happen. So I think actually what I was trying to argue is there's this third way of thinking about mediators, which is they provide a degree of deniability, to both parties. So if you want to negotiate, you're afraid of looking weak. If a third party offers you positive inducements, for example, to come to the negotiating table, you can say, I came to the table not because I'm losing, not because the war isn't going well, but because I got these positive inducements. And it gives some deniability that uh, allows you to talk without looking weak. Mediators might also be able to put international pressure on the belligerents not to escalate. If talks are agreed to. So, again, if you're concerned about looking weak and emboldening your enemy, if there is a more powerful outside party or influential outside parties that could make that escalation less likely, talks are more likely to happen. So in some of the historical cases, that's actually a strategy that China pursues very often is to influence the United States. You know, they don't go to their partners and and friends. They go to U.S. partners and friends. And they try to convince in, in the Korean War, for example, the U.K. or other U.N. fighting nations to tell the United States not to escalate. Um, When the Chinese fought the Indians in 62, they went to other non-aligned states because they thought those states had more influence with India. When they fought Vietnam, they went to Southeast Asian states. So they're always going to the states closest to their adversary and trying to convince those states to put some sort of constraints and limitations on the other side. So escalation is not likely and, and talks can, can begin. So I think that's also an interesting dynamic because, as you know, the United States, whenever we want to put pressure on China, we go to our allies and partners. We don't go to the countries that have the most influence with China, um, which might be a, a different policy direction that could be fruitful and effective.
0: So these are all wartime diplomatic strategies, right? And I know that is the topic of your book, but I also know that you recently gave a a statement to the Senate Mm. about what we can do in peacetime to prevent all this from happening. Right. Can we talk about that?
1: So the first thing is I might differ in my focus, in that uh, my research and what I argue about how to compete with China is not about avoiding armed conflict with China. Avoiding war is very easy. If you just give the other side everything they want. The question is, how can the United States protect its interests and its security while avoiding any unnecessary conflict? Now, to do that, I think we have to think about competition differently than we have been. So what I talked about for the, for the Senate um, Foreign Relations Committee was how China competes. We know that competition is a main feature of international politics. We know that it can lead to certain um, policies that are very observable, like, you know, building up arms, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we don't do enough work into actually thinking about how states compete. And I argue in that in a Foreign Affairs article that China has actually been very entrepreneurial. They haven't been out competing in the United States. They compete in areas where the United States is not there, where competitive forces are very weak. Um, for the most part. And they delay the military competition for as long as possible. But even there, you know, they focus on things like anti-access area denial or gray zone strategies, things that are not the U.S. strengths. What it means is that we have to think about what our strengths are, not what China is doing. So the response to Chinese increased influence with the One Belt, One Road, for example, is not to have our own infrastructure plan. Because China has a comparative advantage in infrastructure building that the United States does not have. And so I think we have to think differently about um, being a more attractive partner in the international system. If the United States wants to maintain its power and influence around the world, you know, what is it that we offer countries and that we can continue to offer countries that China cannot? Because in the end, to be competitive, it's not really about U.S.-China relations. It's about the United States' relationship with the world and China's relationship with the world. So I think we have to throw out all of our Cold, Cold War thinking on some of these issues, stop doing just more of the same things, and have a safer space to think about new and innovative ideas about how the United States can reinvent its global leadership role.
0: And what would be some of those things that the U.S. has that China does not have? On what level can the U.S. become competitive again?
1: Well, I would say, for example, we're very good at quality and uh, less on quantity. So if you think about economic development, which is, is not my area of expertise, but as I've been working on this project, I've looked into it more. You know, China pours a lot of money into things, but the United States has higher quality results. Right? So when the United States uh, does something in a country, it ensures that more people benefit than when China does it, in which maybe a select few kind of elites benefit from it. And so that, I think, is one area where the United States has a strength. Another area is a, is a more general comment, which is that the United States prefers strong partners. Right? China's whole strategy is about building influence so it can coerce other states to do what it wants and, and reduce the freedom of other countries to make decisions that are best for themselves. And the United States, you know, is not perfect in this. I'm not saying that the United States has has never threatened, you know, another country, or um, has never made a country worse off. But it's not sort of government policy to try to make countries poorer and weaker in order to be partners with us. And so I think this is something that you know the United States really needs to highlight with our allies and partners, and in uh, other countries. Uh, do you want a partner that wants you to be? Uh, Poor and weaker than they are? Or do you want one that thinks it's to everyone's benefit the stronger and richer you are?
0: These partners, especially in the region, and that would, for instance, be Philippines and Vietnam, their strategic interests are directly opposed to China's interests. So how do you improve those partnerships or at least tell them you have their back without provoking China and leading to conflict?
1: Well, again, I'm. I guess I'm not as concerned about provoking China. Right? Because if in the end, the United States willingness to defend countries against Chinese aggression provokes Chinese aggression, then China is the type of country that is unsafe for the region. right? Right now we have a lot of uncertainty about. Uh, what China wants how China's going to behave but in my view if if China starts really just directly using military force to get what it wants in the region then it is fairly clearly articulated that it's not going to play a constructive role and so i think what's important is that the united states is is willing to defend its allies and and but also tries not to unnecessarily provoke conflict right you don't want to encourage the allies you know encourage the philippines to take the features that they claim that they currently do not occupy right that would be kind of a change of the status quo but the united states credibly committing to defend these countries um, you know i think that that is more of a deterrent against china than anything else if the united states was not there the makeup of the regional order would be very different and it would be different because smaller countries would be forced to acquiesce to the demands of china
0: Now, I'm very interested to hear your take on what's happening in Hong Kong right now. And I know it's a special case, obviously, because it is technically part of China. But calling from Hong Kong, I can't not talk about how let down they feel by Western defenders of democracy um, in in, in their current struggle. What is your take on what America should do to maintain that that image of being the protector of free speech and, and democracy? in a region like Hong Kong?
1: Yeah, this is a, this is a very hard question. And it goes to you know, the other issue about protecting allies but not wanting to encourage them. It, I, the United States had a history during the Cold War, in my mind. And again, this is not my area of expertise, but just kind of being a, you know, a, an observer and, and being raised in the US educational system. It seemed like the United States um, did a lot of things in the name of democracy and freedom that did not correspond to our values and our norms. And so on one hand, this is another kind of comparative advantage of the United States, is that we do have norms and values that are attractive beyond beyond our borders, and I think that we should promote those and not be afraid of promoting those, even if it means we're going to be punished you know, by a country like China. But I also want to make sure that... Um, that we are not exploiting situations for strategic advantage. And that, you know, really the goal here is to increase the freedom of people around the world and not to use these struggles of people... Just for strategic advantage, you know, against China, for example, because then that can actually get very messy and in many cases does not help the people that really need that help. So I think it's an important part of U.S. strategy and human rights needs to be brought back into it Um, because not only around the world, but also in the United States. I think there's a lot of disappointment about the United States at home as well as abroad, not living up to its, uh, its promise as being kind of a beacon for some of these liberal values. And so I do hope that moving forward, as we compete with China and, see, and we see kind of the vision of what China has for the world, that even those in the United States become more inspired to really promote some of these ideas at, at home first and then also elsewhere, because that used to be kind of the U.S. way. Right. I mean, I always think of the U.S. military as as being there to protect those that can't protect themselves. And um, I would like that to be not only a narrative, but also uh, but also very close to the truth as well.
0: I think that's a really nice note to end on. (laughs) Yeah. It's... So my only remaining questions then are the other ones you dread, which are, um, right. let's start with reading recommendations.
1: Right. We had mentioned this before because I actually, so I, you know, I'm a professor, so students always ask me for a lot of career advice. And maybe it's my military background, but in the military, we talk about balance a lot. You know, that you you have to have the, the spiritual and the physical and the mental. You can't be doing only one thing. So as I mentioned to you, that in my free time, to the surprise of everybody, perhaps, I don't uh, read about China. I read novels. I just finished one this morning called or- Ordinary People by Diana Evans, which was fantastic. Read Milkman this year, which was great. Um, so that's what I spend all my time reading. So I'm not very useful. If you, if you ask me, <laughs> have you read the new You know, memoir written by so-and-so ex-government official, you know, my answer is no. When I want to know about China, what I do is every week I read not only news articles, but I go through all the think tanks. And right now, some of my favorite websites, I've always loved the China Leadership Monitor That's published um, through Stanford University because they have a section on economics, military, the party, and they kind of just update you on the most important trends of the past three months. And of course, right now, if you haven't looked at uh, AMTI, the Asian Maritime Transparency Initiative out of CSIS, I'm working on some South China Sea stuff right now. And I I love that website um, because it's just it's it's a lot of information, and I think we're always looking for people's opinions, which is important. But we also are in the business of creating knowledge, and sometimes creating knowledge is just about you know getting information and piecing it together in a useful way. I guess for for all of your young China watchers, I would tell them um, you know. It's important to work really hard and, and understand whatever component of the of the China puzzle that you're looking at, uh, but you know then go do have some other hobbies and do something else as well.
0: <laughs> it's always good to be reminded of that.
1: Yeah, of course. That's that's how that's how you know I've been doing this now for I've been studying China for almost 20 years, and I and besides it being a fascinating topic, it's really that balance that that keeps uh, your interest and keeps you going.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much for making the time.
1: Oh, of course.
0: It's been really interesting to talk to you.
1: It was nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you, too. Oriana's book, The Cost of Conversation, Obstacles to Peace Talks in Wartime, is available on Amazon. You'll find a link in the description. Thank you so much to Oriana and her team at the American Enterprise Institute. For more information on our organization, go to youngchinawatchers.com. Find your nearest chapter and join the conversation. My name is Sam Colomby. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions.